Father, thank you that you are a God of love. In fact, God, you are love. That's the way the Bible states it. You are the God who is love. You are the standard of love. We thank you that you love us so in-depthly that you loved us before the foundations of the world. You knew us. You would not let us stray. You went after us. And so, Lord, you are both the source and the fountain of love. We would not know love outside of you, Lord. Lord, we thank you that you have an eternal love seen in the relationship between a triune God. The Father, the Son, the Spirit have loved each other perfectly. They have eternally had a love that has been unbroken. It's been perfect and it's been an example to us. And Lord, now we realize as you draw people to yourself, as you bring your elect to you, you draw us into that beautiful trinity of love. And we experience that. And it demonstrates to us greatly how we are to live our lives, how we are to love one another. Thank you, Father, for loving us. Thank you, Son, for loving us. Thank you, Spirit, for loving us. During these times that we often say uncertain, they are not uncertain for you, Lord. You have set these things in motion. And you are unchanging, Lord. And so we turn to you in our time of need. We turn to you for understanding. We turn to you for purpose during this time. We ask that you would help us when we have unbelief, that you would strengthen that. We ask that your love that you have showed and how you have orchestrated all events would be a great motivation. Lord, drive us to your promises to be reminded that you are a great God who loves us and cares for us. Father, we pray for grieving families this morning. We have a number of families who have lost loved ones to this virus. Lord, though they are not in our area, we pray for the families, Lord, the families that serve and worship here, Lord, and then their extended families in, in other states, Lord. We ask that you would just be gracious and kind to them. Ease their sorrow. Show them you are the great comfort, the God of comfort. Lord, we think of others that are struggling with severe health issues. We think of those who have gone under surgery, difficult surgeries this week, who have had treatments. Lord, we pray that you would have your hand on them. You would show them mercy and kindness. You would heal them, Lord. We know you can do that. But we do pray, Lord, that we would trust you in all things that you do, Lord. Whether you do them according to what we would want or you do them strictly according to your will, would we trust you, Lord? But we do ask for healing, Lord. Father, we pray for those who have lost jobs, we pray for our business owners. Lord, I can see their faces. I, I know these men and women. I pray, Lord, that you would sustain their businesses, sustain their income. And more importantly, God, I would ask that you would encourage them to trust you in ways that they would give you the glory and credit in difficult times and in blessing. But Lord, be merciful to our business owners. Be merciful to our families that need income. Father, I pray for those who might be experiencing loneliness. They have been isolated a long time. They maybe do not have a household of kids or family members. Lord, I pray for them. Lord, let them turn to you. Let them reach out to pastors and elders, overseers, to the church staff, to, to family, friends, those in their BFGs. Lord, give them desire to speak with somebody. Lord, do not let them suffer in their loneliness.
cause them to turn to you. Lord, I also thank you that the wicked will not go unpunished. This day of testing on our societies around the world, there are still people who choose to do wicked and evil. We know that you see that, Lord, and we know, as we'll see even today in the text, that you will judge that. And we thank you that we can trust you, that you will judge, you will bring your hand upon them. It is not something we have to go out and do. You will take care of that someday. But cause us to always be presenting the gospel to those who morally look good on the outside or those who are struggling with immorality. Help us offer the gospel, Lord, and let us let you be the judge. Lord, protect your church in these unique times. We're all separated. We long to be together. You made us have a desire to, to meet. You gave us that spirit within us that desires to cling to one another and be a part of a, a functioning body, Lord. So we pray that you would sustain us as we're apart. Lord, I pray for any of those that may be drifting away. They've got away from the accountability of the church and their spiritual lives are struggling. Lord, I pray that you would bring them under conviction, Lord. And during this time of isolation, they would repent and turn from sin that's dragging them away from your truth and from your church and from your word. But Lord, cause us to be closer than we've ever been constantly praying and upholding one another, longing to be with each other. And Lord, we pray that you would bring us together soon. Lord, it was with great joy we offer this prayer to you, knowing that you hear us, you have not forsaken us, nor have you left us. And so we put our hope and our faith and all that we hold dear into those truths. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning I want to preach from the book of 1 Peter. And as Rick read this morning, I want to start in chapter 4, uh, verse 12. But our main text that we're after is chapter 5, 1 through 4. But we always know there's a context there, isn't there? And we want to kind of pick that up this morning. I think these opening verses at the end of chapter 4 are extremely fitting for the times that we're in. There are great fiery ordeals that we're going through in a sense. We're all suffering in different times. And this is what God does. He challenges the church to see what, what we hold dear to. He takes us through times of testing to see what we hold to and, and what refinement, after that refinement, what comes out of that. The Bible often pictures refinement throughout the scriptures. There the goal is to take us through a time of fiery ordeal, a fiery trial, just like something would go into a refinery to make it more pure, he often takes us through these things. And what's interesting about this passage is at the end of this passage, chapter 4, as it flows down in chapter 5, this letter written to the early church, is one of the things that arises out of this is leadership. God always raises leadership for his people. And so the context is leadership, with Christ leading the way as a suffering servant, and us following him as those who lead, but all of the church learning to suffer for the glory of Christ when asked. Now, I want to look at just a few thoughts this morning um, in this text, and I hope uh, some of these will be very practical, and then some of them will point to why God develops leadership in the church. Number one, the great shepherd of our soul and our bodies. The great shepherd of our soul and our bodies. 
I love the end of Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20 and 21. The writer there is inspired by the Spirit of God to say this. He says, now the God of peace, listen to this, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep. Brought up the great shepherd of the sheep. I love the Lord Jesus Christ. I, I love to think about him in this shepherding mentality. I, I can understand that. I don't know if all people have an agriculture background or can see that, but he's shepherding our souls. souls. He is the great shepherd of the sheep. And I love how the book ends as this book has been focused on the Lord Jesus Christ from the beginning to the end as a great mediator and high priest and prophet and king and so forth. Um, he's been the focus of it. And God raised him from the dead to be our shepherds, to watch over us. Now, God in his providence allows us to go through things. Look at verse 12 with me of chapter 4, verse 12. As we think about the great shepherd of our souls and of our bodies. Notice it says, Beloved. Paul is, excuse me, Peter is drawing in the church here. He's, he's talking to the redeemed. He's talking to those that God has pressed his love upon. And he says, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal. Do not be surprised at things that go on in our lives, the difficulties that we come upon. Because their goal is for the testing of our faith. If you would not want to buy a car that was never tested, would you? Something that just came off the assembly line that nobody put any thought into it. He tests us and, and, and he tries us. And this is such an important aspect of our ministry and, and an understanding what he does within our lives. He takes us through fiery ordeals to test our faith. And he says, as though some strange thing were happening to you. You go, well, why does he say that for? Well, one of the reasons he says that is for us to realize that sin is a difficult thing. Sin is, is flooded its way into the world. It's, it's made its way into our lives, into our hearts. It's made its way into even our homes and businesses and, and certainly into our physical lives. So sin is a problem. And it causes fiery ordeals within our life. As the writer of Hebrews started out the book, he he turns to the glory of Christ. And you remember this in Hebrews chapter 1. It says God after, after he'd spoken in many ways, right? And uh, many portions and so forth. He has spoken now in his son. And then he makes these tremendous statements about him. Who is appointed heir of all things. Who, through whom all the world was made. And then he says this. He is the radiance of his glory, God's glory. He is the exact representation of his nature. So you get Christ, you get God. And then he says this, he upholds all things by the word of his power. He upholds all things by the word of his power. As I've watched this pandemic go by and, and have studied my Bible, have tried to encourage people, have tried to look at everything that's going on with a biblical worldview, several things have come to my thoughts, and I'd like to share those with you this morning. One is we, we certainly give the pandemic a lot of credit. We, we often talk, I think our conversations, if we go back and look at them, they're consumed with this pandemic. They're consumed with these things, and I don't want to lessen the difficulty, and some of you have suffered, and some of you have lost loved ones, and I, in no way do I want to lessen that. But what I want to do this morning is heighten the God who does care for us. It's so easy for us as, as uh, children of God in this fallen world to focus on the difficulties. 
focus on these fiery trials, these fiery ordeals, this testing time, and we fail to look at the glory and the person of God who takes us through this. It was actually last week I was listening to Pastor Brian Sheely preach, and um, I was like you, I was at home watching. Um, and he was in Psalms 139, and I, I jotted down this passage because it struck me that God needs to be honored during this time. And you say, well, what do you mean by that? God created our bodies. In fact, the Bible says that he made us in his image. And so, so he's given us unique bodies to deal with this life. And, and even in this fallen world, even with the difficulties of, of a, a body that's fallen in sin, God has made incredible bodies. Listen to this verse. You remember Brian was teaching on this. Psalms 139, starting verse 14. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Yeah, there's... There's difficulties, aren't there? There's dear sister in church with a tumor, a brain tumor being removed that we love dearly. There's others who are going through cancer treatment. There's, there's difficulties going on. But in all of that, think about it. God makes these bodies to live and to run for 70, 80 years often. They, they fight off disease. God made us to live in a fallen world, even with all the things that are after us, we relatively stay healthy. Because the Bible says that God made us fearfully and wonderfully. And in and, and, and all this time, when you hear all the medical world and all the stuff that talks about how bad it is, I want to talk about how great God is. He, he gave us these bodies. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. We just read that in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. So he holds everything together. My life he holds together. He holds, he ordains my days. Listen to these next verses that go on in Psalms 39 as as Brian preached this last week. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes had seen my unformed substance and in your book were written all of them, all of the days that were ordained to me when as yet there was not one of them. In a time where the world wants to focus in on the deadliness and the, and the sadness of this, and I get that, stop and think. Be like David here. God, I thank you that I am wonderful and fearfully made in your image. Isn't that a beautiful thing to think that God knows every cell, every fiber in me? He, he created me in the image of himself. And so I reflect him in, in certain ways. He, he allows nothing to happen to me. Not one day can be taken from me. And so the great shepherd of our souls and our bodies, I think it's great hope for us. Think about this, um, brothers and sisters. I think there's great hope and joy for us that you realize that as you get up from here and you move about after the service is over, there is no one who can take a day from you. You cannot have your life taken early. You, you cannot attract, uh, contract something that, that God did not design. He has laid these things down. He has your life ordained. He is a great God and he holds us and he cares for us. And though we do not act foolishly, we are stewards of this body. And, I, and if you are struggling with some health issues, you need to be careful in this. You would not want to get this virus if possible. But, but yet at the same time, There is this tremendous trust Christians have in God. 
And I don't want that to go away during this time, brothers and sisters. I don't want us to be so caught up in every news blast that comes out and every new figures and all of those where we forget how great our shepherd is. He's watching the sheep. He knows every one of us. He knows when we were born and he knows when we'll die. He has every fiber of our being in his concern. And he says we are fearfully and wonderfully made. So during this time, as we work our way in this text, think about the greatness of God. Think about how good he is to his children, how he watches over us. Notice back in our text, it reminds us in verse 13 that that there's some kind of degree that you may share in the sufferings of Christ. Certainly we can't die for our own sins, but we can suffer, can't we? But we are to keep on rejoicing. So even in this time as we go through suffering, the Bible teaches us to rejoice. To rejoice in the Lord. And, and, I, and I find myself watching the newscast and going, I, I, this brings me down in, in some aspect. God, you're in control. You have all of this. I rejoice in you. You beat death, so death can't own me. You beat death, so I'll never see the second death. See, rejoicing in the sufferings of Christ. And then it says in verse 13, so that at the, also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. Simply mean his appearing will be glorious to you. See, people who trust God, and even during pandemics and difficult times like this, they long to see the Savior. And when he comes, they're, they're not going to be surprised. They're actually going to be full of glory and joy when he shows up. Because the one who set all things right has arrived. Verse 14 says that you may go through some spiritual suffering, right? You might be reviled for the name of Christ. But if you are, you're blessed. I think sometimes as Christians speak about God's in control, we get blasted. Mayors of major cities have, have said that God didn't do this. Man did it. And they, they, they trifle with God. But not us. We, we believe that God is in control. God brings pandemics and ends pandemics. He allows sin to have great repercussions on this world. And then he shows his grace over and over and over. And so if you are suffering for the name of Christ, the Bible says you're blessed. Stand up for God. Don't, don't fall to the peer pressure that happens. And this, look at this, end of verse 14. The, you re, here's why you can do this. Because the spirit of the glory and of God rests on you. Isn't that an amazing statement, friend? The spirit and the glory of God rest on us. We're marked. He, he, he dwells us. He's with us. And that should be evident. It should be evident. If you're in the medical community, that should be evident in your life. If you're in the business community, that should be evident in your life. Wherever we are, the glory and the spirit of God resting on us should show a great difference in us. Our trust in the Lord. We're not talking about being foolish or lacking in stewardship of what God has given us. But there's a joy and there's a rejoicing that God is in control. Your friends, your neighbors, your the people down at the grocery store, the ones you interact, need people in their life who rejoice, even while they suffer. Look at verse 15 with me. Make sure that none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, or an evildoer, or a troublesome meddler. This is, this is sinful suffering. Don't suffer for that reason. Don't suffer for God. Suffer for him. Stand up for him, but don't suffer because of just sinful behavior. 
the verse 16, but if anyone suffers as a Christian, that's a great word, isn't it? I love the word Christian. It means a follower of Christ. We're followers of Christ. We get in behind him. That's what Christian means. We follow him. So if you suffer for a Christian, don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed. We should be greatly ashamed if we suffer for evil or sinful things that we do. Destroy our marriages or, or um, treat people poorly or uh, don't submit to our government or whatever it may be. But we should be ashamed of those things. But we should never be ashamed for suffering for the Lord Jesus Christ or for standing up and letting people know that our God is in control. It's easy to say things here in a pulpit in a church and even as we watch this live feed. But do we repeat these things in public? Don't be ashamed of him. Next thought, number two. The goodness of God will give way to his wrath. The goodness of God will give way to his wrath. I really want to talk about this for just a moment because it it is clear that there's evidence of God's wrath even now. But his goodness trumps everything. His goodness is, is so much more than his wrath at this point. Look at these verses with me. For it, is, for it is the time for judgment to begin with a household of God. Meaning, God deals with us first before he deals with the world. He wants us to be right with him. He wants us to walk with him. He wants us to deal with sin. He deals with us first. and He deals with us in his kindness and his goodness. He disciplines us like a loving father disciplines his son. That's what he does. But then he goes on to say, if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Well, these are quite strong verses, aren't they? Difficulty for the righteous to be saved means it's very difficult for man to come to God. He cannot do it on his own. He must bend the knee. He must humble himself before God to be saved. God must open his heart and mind. That's an extremely impossible position for a lost person. It's something God must do. But if he deals with us and he disciplines us and directs us and deals with our sin, what is he going to do with the world? So my point here is the goodness of God will give way to wrath. I want to just help you think through a little bit here. As we think about this pandemic and we think about what God has done, it is clear that God brings calamity onto the world. We have verses that teach us that. We have verses that teach us that God is in control of all things. He holds all things together. He allows both good and bad. He, he, he orchestrates all these things. He is not responsible for sin. This is the result of man's sin. But yet he uses all things to bring about his purposes. So think about this just with me a little bit. The Bible says that for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. So Romans 1.18 says that God's wrath in some way is being revealed from heaven to earth. I think we see some of that. Uh, listen, I, this isn't to make this pandemic into this is God judging America. And all. I'm not going down that road. I just want you to think about this. God's wrath is tiny bit of it is being revealed. A small portion of it. God is constantly good to this world. God is constantly pouring favor out on this world. Uh, Acts chapter 14, you have Paul um, ministering and he heals a man and there the, 
uh, Laodiceans begin to believe there are some kind of Greek gods and, and they think Barnabas is one god and, and Paul is Zeus and, and they start to try to worship them and Paul begins to beg them not to worship them. And in the middle of that, he says in Acts 14, verse 16 and 17, he says, in generations gone by, he, God, permitted all of the nations to go their own ways. I don't want to stop right there. It's a, that's such a true statement even to this day. Paul preached this about 2,000 years ago, but it's true today. God has permitted nations to go. There's seven continents on this world, all full of many, many hundreds of nations. Most of those nations are controlled and run by uh, godless religion of some sort. They don't believe in the true living God. They certainly do not believe that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except by him. Most countries have a religious effect on them that is not of God. But God, down through the ages, down through generations, has permitted nations to go their own way. He's let them do that. And yet, Paul says in this great sermon, says, and yet he did not leave them without witness of himself. He did not leave them without a witness of himself. And here's how he did it. He did, it, he did good and he gave them rain from heaven in fruitful seasons, satisfying the hearts with, with food and gladness. Now think about this for a moment. God is showing just a hair, just a little bit of his wrath. I think we just went over the 200,000 person mark of death of this virus, at least what they are equating that to. It's a lot of people, it's 200,000 people around the world. And, and you, you have to believe that God has allowed this to happen. And I think you see this, this wrath that God can put out. But in the middle of that, I want you to now think with me. In the middle of this, you have watched God raise the sun every morning in the east. He has sent rain. He has grown vegetables. He has fed the world. In, in the middle of this, as he shows a, a tiny bit of his ability to, to bring people's lives to the end, to bring death and pandemic, he has the ability to bring that. In the middle of it, mostly what God has done is he's good. He's good. And he shares his goodness constantly with the world. He constantly pours his goodness on people's lives. They drive around with no regards of God. They walk around with no concern of who he is and what he did and what he created and what he accomplished to, to bring people to himself. No concern. And so he constantly pours his goodness out on the world. But friend, I want to tell you this. There is a day coming. There's a day coming where his goodness will go away for those who do not know him. Right now, the world can die of this pandemic and they see the wages of sin is death. That's the wrath of God being poured out on man. But mostly they see goodness. There's a day when someone rejects the Lord Jesus Christ and in that final day, Matthew chapter 25 in the great Olivet Discourse, um, Jesus says there's a day coming where he will separate the sheep and goats and he will turn to the ones on his left and he'll say, I never knew you. Depart from me. That day, that day, fallen men all fallen people who have rejected Jesus Christ as their Savior will no longer ever taste the goodness of God again. They will only see his wrath. I want you to think about that for a little bit. 
We see just a touch of his wrath right now. God has done this. We've seen it down through ages. We've seen horrific wars where hundreds and millions of people have died. Um, Nazi camps. You've seen all of that. You've seen the wickedness of man. God's wrath being poured out on man in small measures. And yet the sun kept coming up. And yet food kept coming. God kept sending rain to the earth. There is a day coming. And this is why we... We preach the sufferings of Christ and we suffer for his glory because there is a day coming where those who reject the Lord Jesus Christ will never taste the goodness of God again. Let me say this. Hell is empty of the goodness of God, in a sense. It is only the wrath of God they will see for all of eternity. And so why we go through this, and what I'm trying to do is refocus our attention, thinking about this. God is a good God. He keeps us healthy. He gives us life. He ordains our days. He he knows every cell and fiber within us. He does judge sin. He's judging sin now. But mostly God is good to us. To To the ones that are his children and to the ones who are not, he is still good over and over and over. But there is a day coming when his goodness will give way to his wrath. And man will not see his goodness. They will only see his wrath. And the way it is explained in the Bible, Jesus himself says they will only have weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's the existence of the eternal world of the lost. And so, as we go through this, I have thought over and over, God, let us not miss the goodness that you have. That you have rained down on us your kindness day after day. Kindness to people who use your name in vain daily. Kindness to, to mayors and, and governors and elected officials who mock your name. You have shown kindness. But there's a day coming without will end. And if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, if you don't know him as your savior, I would ask you to plead that he would open your mind and hearts because there's one day all this goodness that you taste, a supermarket full of food, free roads to drive around on, freedom to do what you think you want to do, that all goes away with death. And you move under the wrath of God. The Bible says for Christians that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. See, that's the freedom we have. As a Christian, we realize that there's death coming for the world. There's a second death. It's the most horrible death. But Christians who know Jesus Christ will never see that condemnation, will never see the judgment hand of God, will be free from that. And we will know his goodness only for all of eternity because God opened our minds to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, friend, if you don't know him, I would plead with you. Beg him. Plead with him to open your mind that you, he, would, you, he would show you his goodness. That he would show you his glory. That he would show you what Christ has done. Because otherwise, you're going to live in fear the rest of your life. What's the next pandemic? What's next flu season going to look like? What's the next car wreck or next disease or, or the next cancer? You're just going to live in fear all your life. See, see we don't have to do that as Christians. Because our God's a good God and he loves us. He loved us from the foundations of the world and he's brought us into this Trinitarian love that he shares with the Son and and the Spirit. He envelops us with that love. And we find peace and safety in that. And so as you look at the end of four, 
He says, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Well, here's what becomes of them. They never see the goodness of God again. They perish eternally. And then verse 19, therefore those who suffer according to the will of God, now that's a great phrase as we end this point, suffer for the will, from, because of the will of God. This is God's will. Yeah, we can't be together. Yes, we have family that are going through difficult times, and, and, but that's God's will. So we suffer on and we, we realize that he's given us those also who suffer for the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. And so what we do, instead of fearing all of this and, and falling into the fear-mongering of news and broadcasts and medical communities and so forth, all that that comes at us, we fall before a faithful creator. I, I love that last phrase. We entrust our souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Here, here's what you can bank on. God's always gonna do what's right. Every time and you put your faith in him. And then you go through these pandemics a little easier. You go through these difficult trials. Yes, you weep and you suffer with our loved ones that are going through difficult times, difficult surgeries or so forth. We weep with those who weep, but we also rejoice because we have a faithful creator who will not let us drown. He has reserved for us a place in heaven, and he has that day marked. He knows our days. They cannot be shortened and they cannot be lengthened. So we'll trust him. I hope that encourages you. I want to look at just a few more thoughts as this context flows down into leadership with me. You'll notice that verse one of chapter five says therefore. So our third thought is this New Testament standard for leadership. Well that therefore is a really important verse and and leadership gets developed out of this. Um, None of our elders that we have here that I have the privilege of serving with are not not accustomed to suffering. In fact, every one of them have been through unique aspects of suffering. They've had to learn to trust God through difficult circumstances. God's asked them to do difficult things and trust him and walk with him. And so leadership really comes out of suffering. I would say this, that Biblical eldership is built on men who understand the suffering of Christ. And they themselves have participated in it in a sub-level. And so as we flow from that context, I don't want you to think there's just a whole new chapter that's starting that therefore ties us to this. That God, through suffering, raises men up. And that's the kind of elders you want. You want men who have suffered. So then we'll weep with you and they'll rejoice with you and they'll know how to lead you to Christ. And so there's a natural context that flows down through here as Peter recognizes the elders among the flock. So look at point three with me, the New Testament standard for leadership. Look at verse one. Therefore, Peter says, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and the witness of the sufferings of Christ and the partakers also of the glory that is to be revealed. Now, there's some things that are just so obvious in here that we can't miss, right? Peter here, based on this life of suffering for the glory of Christ, sees that elders have been brought and put among the flock. Now, you can't miss some things here. Notice the word elders, plural. It's the word presbyteros here. We get the word elders. It's always used in the plural, always used throughout the scriptures, unless it's talking about the individual, um, individual aspects of an elder, but always used in plurality. The Bible 
the Bible teaches that, that there, God not just raises up a single man to lead a church, he raises up plurality. Now that doesn't happen overnight. There's training and time that, that goes into that. But God always brings a plurality of men to care for his church. And notice that they are among the flock. This is not a group of men who are full of hierarchy. Why? Because they've suffered. They, they know the sufferings of Christ. They, they know what it means to follow him in difficult times. They know what it means to have um, a marriage that honors the Lord, even though it's difficult at times. They know what it means to have a, a raising of child, children, a home that honors the Lord, because they've suffered and they love Christ. But they're among the flock. Notice that. These are not men that reside above and look down upon them. They're men that are found among the flock. What good is a shepherd who is on a hill somewhere and his flock are down in the valley unprotected from the wolves? And so we notice that we always see this standard of New Testament leadership as, as plurality. There's so many blessings to plurality. Um, boy, you're so limited if you, if you believe that a a church should just have a single headship of some senior pastor of some sort and, and he has no accountability, he has no other thought to put in with him. Uh, it's, it's almost foolishness. Proverbs says there's wisdom in the multitude of, the council, uh, multitude of counsel. And so, so when men come together, men called of God, they put their minds together, they look at the Bible together, they, they, they take what they have learned together and they together come among the flock and lead them. The blessings are beyond measure. So often, even this last week, as we dealt with some difficult situations, uh, sitting down with, with the elders and working through difficult decisions that had to be made, difficult counsel that has to be given, experience versus truth, working through that with men who would not compromise but are loving and kind as they do it. Uh, collectively, no one man can carry all that but when you put men together they they care for them and that's why i'm so thankful for today that god has established another two elders for riverbend community church he must gonna entrust us with his children he must gonna entrust us with much of his work if he gives us these men and their resources and their wisdom god gives the church what it needs he raises up the unique men one of the things i love about our plurality not all of us have the same gifts in fact we're very differently gifted some of us are up front a little more than others, but that doesn't make us greater than one another. Um, there's uniqueness in it. There's some a little more quieter and some a little more outspoken. Some a little more theological and, and some a little more practical. Some a little more administrative and, and some a little more counseling. It's amazing what God does is he puts these group of men together to care for the flock. And so Peter just wastes no time. He says, I exhort the elders among you, this plurality, this presbyteros of men who are with you. Notice next you see the equality of elders. He says, as your fellow elder. As your fellow elder. Isn't that interesting that he chooses that term? Hmm, the Roman Catholic Church has made Peter the first pope. They put Peter way up beyond what Peter, the apostle of the Bible, if he were to show up, what he would ever want done. He calls himself a fellow elder. This term is a term of equality puts himself at the same level with these men that he's writing. This is a letter circulated to the churches. You notice in the beginning it's going around to many churches and he lists all these Cappadocias and Bethina and, and these other places. This letter is circulating to the churches that have elders among them. And so he's reminding them that Peter is not raising himself. The Bible's reminding us he's not raising himself above the others. 
And that's what's so, that's so fun. Pride, pride has to go away and you, now you work with this team of men. And, and yet we do different things. We work together to bring about the will of God. Different gifts, different roles bring around great execution of God's word on the flock. That's, that's what he does. Different gifts, different roles bring great execution of the word of God into the flock. And he always has given us those men. Third in this thought here, we see firsthand the knowledge of the gospel. Notice what he does also. He says he's not, he exhorts these elders, plurality that are among you, this, this equality of eldership. And then he says, in the witness of the suffering of Christ. Now, Peter witnessed the suffering of Christ. We know that firsthand. We know that he followed him from the garden and John, most likely John, led him into the courtyard. He watched the abuse of the Lord Jesus Christ. Doubtlessly, Peter was not far from the cross. John was there as his mother was given into the care of John. Um, Peter probably was not far from the cross and he probably suffered uh, as he watched his Savior, who he denied, die for him. And so he certainly is, and it left a permanent mark of the awe of the glory of Christ upon Peter. But I want to challenge you just a little bit. We and we probably even more than Peter, we have a view of the suffering of Christ that is extraordinary. You and I have four gospel accounts. And then we have 13 epistles from Paul. Then we have general epistles, Hebrews and James and Johns and, and, and so forth, to remind us, to teach us of the in-depth knowledge of the suffering of Christ. And so one of the things that has to be a mark of an elder, not only of Peter here, but a mark of any elder, is you're captured by the sufferings of Christ. Not just the gory, wow, boy, they sure beat him up bad. No, that he suffered to take the wrath of God on our place. So remember what we started with, so we never see his wrath. We never see his wrath. So an elder must grasp that at a, at a profound level, and, 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 and it meet him in the core of his soul that Christ suffered for us. And you've witnessed it over and over in the scriptures. You've read it a million times, and, and it never seems to get old as an elder. That Christ died for me, that he hung on a cross, and God judged him like he committed my sins. That's the mark of an elder. He's captured with this with his person of the Lord Jesus Christ that would do something that was so beyond measure, so beyond what I could ever do. See, that's the mark of an elder. He's amazed at Jesus. Notice the motivation of the gospel. And a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. There's something motivating him. He's witnessed the sufferings of Christ through the scriptures. Our elders witness that today. And, and then there's this indebitable, this, this um, unquenched desire to see him. There's this desire to see him. It's a mark of an elder. It means he's got his, he's got his focus right. His goal is on the end game. His goal is on the tape. His, his goal is leading this flock to Christ. That's his goal. He's not lost in trying to find all these other things, as other appearance of his own self. He's after the appearance of Christ. And he's bringing, he's shepherding, he's caring for these people, and he's leading them that direction. Notice the phrase there at the end of verse 1. A partaker also in the glory that is to be revealed. The word partaker gives this intimate understanding that you have, you've, you've you have a personal particip a participation with it. 
You, you, you know it intimately. Um, there's times when I read the death of Christ. Um, um, you, as you know, we're preaching through the book of Mark, and I can't wait to get back to that series, but we're, we're just days to the cross now in that series. But as I study through that and I read my personal reading, it's overwhelming at times to see Christ there. And you often, if you're, if you're, if you're a realist and you really understand sin, you realize why he's hanging there. And, and you can almost say, I should be there. And every stroke of that hammer and every stroke of that nail, you realize he's dying for you. And so there's, this, there's a participation in a sense with that. You understand the great work that God has done. And, and so this causes you to long for him. You know, Peter had a little bit of an advantage on the Mount of Transfiguration. There he saw the Lord Jesus Christ unveiled in a sense. And he was white as snow and gleaming and he was full reflection of the glory of God because he is God. And Peter saw that. But what Peter saw was living hope. That's what he saw that day on Matthew 17 on Mount of Transfiguration. He saw living hope. And that's what elders must see. Elders must see that Jesus Christ is our living hope. And that we participate now with him. He's brought us into the ministry. He uses us now to, to teach the word of God, to lead people towards Christ. We now participate longing for the appearing, the revelation of him. A resurrected Christ is beautiful to us. Every Sunday is an Easter Sunday to an elder. Without the resurrection of Christ, we have no hope. We find ourselves dead in our sins and then, this, then we begin to wrestle. And I think that's what Peter is saying here. This transforming power of this new life is, is equated with this awakening of the soul. And that's our goal, to, to share the gospel in such a way that God awakens souls and people long to see Christ. I hope going through this pandemic and the issues that we've had, I hope each one of you Christians, you've desired to see Christ more. You wanna know him. You want to experience him, understand him. You want to die to sin and know him. I hope that this draws us closer to him. And that's the goal of elders. Number four, we belong to God's flock. We belong to God's flock. My time is running quickly, but look at this with me. Verse two and three says, a shepherd of the flock of God among you exercises oversight not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God, not under sordid gain, but with eagerness nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. So first we realize it's God's flock, right? Shepherd the flock of God. It's God's flock purchased with Christ's blood. There's a stewardship there, elders. There's a stewardship. It's not ours. It belongs to him. And, and there's, a, there's, a, there's a compulsion there that's not driven by men. So we don't, exercise our God-given oversight through compulsion. We exercise it because God's called us. He's called us to be elders, shepherds, overseers. You see, all these terms are in this text. There's a reason why we don't really vote people in. We affirm them at the end of the process. The church just affirmed Gary and Paul. But we affirm them because we see that God had raised them up. And so they're not to be do this under compulsion. We should not push people into being elders. Let God raise them up. Let God do that. God calls elders voluntarily according to his will. Notice that. I love this phrase. But voluntarily, God brings and moves within the heart. I never went to Gary. I never went to Paul. 
I never went to the rest of these men and said, hey, you should be elders. God moved these men. And it's interesting, they come to us and say, hey, uh, I'm wrestling with this. I, I think God is calling me, he's pulling me. See, that's what God does. And we voluntarily let him move us. And of course, there's qualifications there to make sure it's God, not us. Make sure it's not our flesh leading us. God is bringing men along, and that's what he did with these men. It's a complex process. You know, we, 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 people say, man, your process is quite in-depth. Well, yeah, we want to make sure that those men and the church know that God has raised these men up. They weren't compelled to be elders. They were God-called. God calls elders voluntarily because then it gives him all the credit, not the men. The result of God's will is not for personal gain. Notice that they're not doing this for sordid gain. It's an interesting term, isn't it? Some translations use the word filthy lucre, uh, meaning there's, if I become this elder, this pastor, I can be rich. Well, certainly we see that a problem today, don't we? We see that the prosperity gospel, uh, men and women proclaiming that they're wealthy because God has put blessing on them and, and they, in a way, just, uh, just rape the church in a sense, taking money and, and and pushing people to give in order that they could be prosperous too. That's all sort of gain. You know, many of our elders are lay elders. They're giving their time and efforts and their, their, with not anything financial. They're there because God is motivated. Those of us that have a, a calling and, and we serve in a more um, full-time capacity, God provides funds for us so we can do this, so we can study and shepherd. But together, we do this without the desire for personal gain. There's good accountability. The Lord keeps us accountable with one another. Notice we serve with an inward delight. He says to do it with eagerness, right? We eagerly do this. There's an inward des- desire to do this. There's an, eager, there's an inward delight to serve the Lord. We're convicted of our callings and, and there's a desire to give our lives for the Lord. Notice there's uh, uh, an aspect of this that prevents us from lording it over. When you have an inward delight in the glory of Christ and in your humble calling, there's a fear and there's a trembling that keeps you from lording it over people. Now, that doesn't mean that we're perfect in all of our ways and times pride may get the best of us, but it's, it's short. It's, that's repentative. Because we know that it's not our flock. It's not ours. How can we lord over something that doesn't belong to us? It belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, elders are going to be required in Hebrews chapter 13 that we will give an account of what we did. And so if we lord over it, we would certainly be misusing what God intended. And then finally, here it says that we are to be an example to the flock at the end of verse 3. Be example to the flock. Elders are not the ultimate example. Christ is. I want to make sure that's very clear. Our goal is to lead you to Christ, to point to Christ. But our lives are to be above reproach. That means there's consistency in our lives. There's a consistent love for the Lord Jesus Christ that's motivating. It helps us as we walk with the Lord. It helps our marriages be consistent. We have a marriage that reflects the Lord Jesus Christ in, a con- in his church in a consistent way. Not failed marriages, marriages that are successful, that, that bring glory to God. There's homes that are, are homes that you can tell Christ is there, that, that he's honored in that home. And, and there's 
hospitality and love and there's all kinds of things that flow out of that home because this is the consistency of an elder. His business honors the Lord. His practices and business are not shady. The way he handles his neighbors and loves his neighbors, the way he deals with outsiders, staff, children, and think about this, how he cares for the least of the brethren. How does he care for those who maybe struggle with uh, some kind of mental undevelopment or, or those who are just weak. The Bible talks about those who are weak. Elders are to care for those people. See, this is that mark of an example. And so this is who God is raising up. And then my last thought, the chief shepherd is coming. The chief shepherd is coming, number five. I, I don't want to go into this verse mainly because of the sake of time too much, but let me just read it to you and tell you what I don't know. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive an unfound, unfading crown of glory. Here's what I don't know. I don't know what that verse means. I don't know what awaits me as some kind of reward. I don't know that the Bible talks about that much. But here's what I do know. Here's what I do know when I look at this verse. Each of us have our own calling. Every one of us are called to serve the Lord uniquely with our gifts, with the people he's put us with, with the church that he's put us in. Each one of us serve him uniquely and each one of us serve him in our roles. And each one of us will be rewarded for what we've done for his glory. And so I would challenge you this, whether you're an elder or Sunday school teacher or you hand a bulletin out or you call on the sick or whatever you may do, you pray for somebody because you don't have any money or any strength. You just pray for somebody at home and you're shut in. Whatever your role is, whatever God has given you and you serve the Lord from your heart, he will reward that. He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him, uh, Hebrews chapter 11. And the Bible tells us as Paul was dying, he said, I fought the good fight. As he's getting ready to finish it, he's all past tense. I fought the good fight. Are you in the good fight? Are you in the fight? Are you sitting on the sideline? You gotta be in the fight. And, and have you finished the course? Are you, are you, are you running the race? Or have you checked out already just hoping Jesus will come back? Have you kept the faith? Have you hung on to what Christ has done for you? Are you still marveling at what he has done? Because Paul says, in the future there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. But here we go. And not only me, but to also to all those who have loved his appearing. I think the key there, and as we close this out, is this crown of righteousness. Crowned in Christ's righteousness is the idea here. That's the reward. Can, can, can you think of anything better than spending eternity dressed in the righteousness of God, righteousness of Christ, in perfect harmony with the Father because of the finished work of Jesus Christ? Can you think of anything better? You, you want some kind of gold, something to put on your head compared to standing in the righteousness of Christ for all of eternity? Well, that's the reward. That's the reward. So run hard and finish well. It's so worth it. This life is worth running, whether you're an elder or, or you hold babies in the nursery. And everything in between and every other need that needs to be done, whatever God has you to do, do it well for his glory. Finally, are you willing to suffer for him? 
And as we move to communion, I want you to think about this. The Lord's asking us to suffer in very small ways, isn't he? Is he worthy to suffer for? And as we take the bread and the cup here in just a moment, it's gonna remind us of what he went through. Are you willing to suffer for him and rejoice in the suffering? That's the difference. Not, oh me, oh poor me, I'm going through this. Lord, cause me to rejoice in suffering because you're worth it. You've revealed yourself to me. I know who Jesus is. I know he's died for me. I know he holds my future. Let's pray. Father, thank you for a time in the word today. This is an extensive passage, but yet at the same time, we watch your we watch what you're doing here, Lord. You're building the church. You're raising men up. And these, these men are not just hand-selected in some way. They're, they're raised up by you. They're men who have been through the fire. They've been tested. They've suffered, Lord. And so that they can now be among the flock. They can care for the flock. And yet, Lord, as we look at this and we step back over all of what we're going through here today, we see that you are pouring some kind of judgment out on this world. It is the result of sin. And yet it's so minuscule to the goodness that you pour out, even on the wicked today. This beautiful sun that you set and hung in the sky um, in the universe came up today just like you promised. We feel the warmth of it. The flowers and vegetables are growing, and yet men curse your name. Many times today throughout this, throughout this world, men and women will call down curses using your name in vain. And yet you are good. But Lord, there's a day coming when those who do not know you will be cast into utter darkness. And all your goodness will be removed. They will only know your wrath. So Lord, we ask that you would let us share the gospel with them. We want them to be saved. And furthermore, we want to live lives, Lord, that are full of rejoicing and gratitude because of what you've done for us, Lord. Lord, as we take the table and remember this great finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, spur our hearts, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.